Welcome to the 84th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Nick Santora. Santora is a successful Hollywood screenwriter and producer. He's also the author of the new crime thriller, 15 Digits. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Nick Santora. Nick is the author of the new crime novel, 15 Digits, which is available in bookstores now. A graduate of Columbia Law School, Santora practiced law before his writing career took off. In addition to writing novels, Santora has written and produced television and feature films. He was a writer for The Sopranos, The Guardian, Law and Order, Prison Prison Break, and others. He also co-wrote and helped create the television series Breakout Kings. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. Nick, as we get started, could you read the prologue of your new crime novel, 15 Digits? Here's the prologue. The problem with all you lawyers, more or lectured spade, is you think the support staff's nothing but replaceable parts. Just warm bodies and blue blazers running your files up and down the floors whenever you snap your fingers. You treat us guys like we're invisible. Rich Morrow sat back in the booth and took a pull on his beer. Spade studied him for a moment and smiled a disconcerting grin, a Cheshire cat that ate the canary kind of thing. And that's why you're where you are and I'm where I am, Spade pointed out smugly. Where you see problems, I see opportunities. Jason Spade leaned across the table over the half-finished harps and the untouched onion rings. In the crowded bar between the blare of the smithereens on the jukebox and the howl of drunk Irish electricians toasting some dead union brother, there was no need to whisper. But Jason Spades was the kind of idea that demanded secretive tones. Even if whispers weren't required by the environment, they were called for by the very nature of what he was about to propose. The benefit of being invisible, Jason Spade, excuse me, the benefit of being invisible, Jason whispered, looking straight into Morrow's eyes, is that people don't see you when you're robbing them blind. Now, how about you and I get rich, Rich? And with that simple question, a chain of events began that changed, destroyed, and ended lives. People would be maimed, tortured, and killed. Millions of dollars would be stolen, then stolen away from the thieves themselves. It was a question that would eventually make Rich Morrow, Jason Spade, Vicellus, Vice Green, Dylan Rodriguez, and Eddie Pesorczyk suffer beyond measure. Some of them would die because of it. After it all went down to the ill-informed, it appeared that it happened because of money. But to those who were involved in it, to the guys who were so deep in the mess that it covered their mouths and pushed up into their nostrils, they understood that it all happened for love. Love that was pure and real, or love that had never been there to begin with, but love nonetheless. And all of it, every cry of agony, every drop of blood, it all began with that conversation between Rich Morrow and Jason Spade, a conversation that lasted less than 15 minutes on a summer night over a couple of beers in a graffiti-stricken booth in the back of McMahon's Pub. Well, if the listeners haven't heard about 15 Digits yet, how would you describe your new novel? Uh, I would describe it as something you absolutely have to buy. <laughs> <laughs> I think any author, so that, should be the, that should be the first thing they say. <laughs> um, but, but seriously, I, I would say that it's, it's, a, it's a quintessential New York story. It's a great crime thriller. And it's really uh, a cautionary tale of, you know, look out for the people that you ignore every day because they might just be robbing you. (laughs) That's great. Well, well, (laughs) can you remember a specific idea that led to writing 15 digits? 
And and when you did have that, oh, go ahead. No, I say, oh yeah, go. I'm sorry, interrupt. No, no, I was just going to say. And when you had that initial idea or concept, did you quickly know it was a novel, or did you initially think it was a screenplay? Um, I initially thought it was a screenplay, and I and I remember when I when I had the idea, and the idea was uh, when I was a lawyer. I had graduated from from Columbia and was working at a big corporate law firm called Sullivan Cromwell, and it's one of the biggest law firms in the world. They've got just offices all over the world, and it's a phenomenal law firm. And uh, the people there were great, incredible lawyers, much better lawyers than I could have ever become. And I was working there. And you had to, you had all of these protections, not just at that firm, but at, at all firms, at at all levels of firms. Uh, when you go to law school, when you take the bar, you have to take the um, ethics portion of the bar exam. You take ethics classes in law school. When you go to law firms, very often, not all law firms, but a lot of them require that you take courses on what is inside information. What not courses, you know, seminars. Right. What is inside information? What is insider trading? What is confidentiality? How do you breach confidentiality? Um, what is um, a, a fiduciary relationship that you cannot breach and cannot um, destroy it? All of these things to, to protect clients and protect lawyers from breaking the law and to protect the law firm from getting in trouble. And you have all these bells and whistles and belts and suspenders to stop that from happening. And then you take all of the documents that are associated with these multi-million dollar or billion dollar mergers and acquisitions and buyouts and tender offers and all of, these, all of these things that happen at these big, giant, white-shoe law firms, and you send the documents down into the basement of the law firm for a bunch of kids who are getting paid basically minimum wage or a little bit more, and they're in their late 20s or their 30s, and they're the ones who collate, format, copy, vellabind, all of these documents, and then get them ready to be filed with the SEC or whatever government regulatory agency or, or whatever lawyer is handling that case, and they send them back to the lawyer. And these guys are seeing all that stuff every day. And some lawyers aren't allowed to see that stuff. You can be in a law firm. There can be a Chinese wall set up where you don't even know what your friends down the hall are working on because it's so confidential. And the lawyers don't have the access to these documents that the guys that working in the basement printers have. <laughs> they have unfettered access. And I always found it interesting. Not just I'm not, I'm not saying this is the situation at Sullivan and Cromwell. But I'm saying I've been at a bunch of firms. I've seen how it works. And I always thought, almost immediately as a lawyer, I thought, this is crazy. <laughs> These guys don't realize they have next week's Wall Street Journal flying through their Xerox machine every day. They have billions of dollars worth of information, and they're barely getting minimum wage. And I had that idea. When I was a lawyer, I wanted to be a writer. And, and I, I would think about stories all the time. And it was before I became a professional writer. And I just kind of tucked it away in the back of my brain. And then when I became a professional writer, I pitched it to my agents, not even the agents I have now, my first agents. And I said, this is a great movie. And they said, ah, it is, it's cool, but, you know, we want you to get settled in TV. Just hold on to it before you start branching out to film. And then years passed, and then I wrote my first novel, Slip and Fall, and that was a national bestseller. And I said, hey, books aren't that bad. <laughs> Maybe I should write books. So I wrote 15 digits, and and now you and I are talking. Great. About it. Well, well, as I mentioned at the um, at the beginning, and you just mentioned you you have a law degree, and and you later started writing for television, and you just mentioned that you you know had ideas for stories. So what what was the kind of progression from I mean working at this white shoe law firm to writing for the Sopranos? How did that happen? 
it was it was crazy. Uh, and it, and it, I tell people this story, and they don't believe it. But um, I had left Sullivan and Cromwell, which was this great big law firm and a wonderful place to, to work if, if that's what you wanted to do with your life. But I always wanted to be a writer, and, and I had real no desire to be a lawyer. But sometimes, you know, you just fall into things. And uh, I left that firm, and I went. I, I couldn't have made a bigger career change. I went to a tiny little personal injury law firm above a pizza place in Brooklyn. <laughs> and so I went from like one of the fanciest firms to like this rough and tumble blue collar firm of like five attorneys, from like a thousand attorneys to five attorneys. And I thought if I got into a courtroom and at least started doing some depositions and arguing motions and going to you know the you know, doing some appellate work and going to the Court of Appeals or the Appellate Division, you know, in New York, I would be more uh, fulfilled as a lawyer. And it turns out I wasn't, but it was a little bit more interesting. Um, but while I was doing that, and I did that for years, um, I was really miserable because I, I just wasn't doing what I wanted to do with my life. And I finally asked my wife one day, uh, would you mind if I took my last week's vacation this year? And I know we were planning on going away, but let's cancel that. I'm going to stay home and I'm going to write a screenplay. <laughs> And that's all I'm going to do that week. And my wife, who's the most incredible person in the world, just looked at me and said, you know what? You're really unhappy. And I kind of don't want well, we a couple of years into our marriage. And I kind of don't want to spend the rest of my life living with a miserable person. <laughs> so, yeah, please, for the love of God, write the screenplay. So I wrote it in nine days, the five days I had off and the two weekends. And uh, I took that screenplay. And it was called Slip and Fall. It later became my first novel. And I submitted it to the New York Independent Film Festival. Uh, it, I think it was officially called the New York Independent International Film Festival or something like that. And uh, it got accepted to the film festival, which was a million to one shot. And then it won Best Screenplay of the Competition, which was a billion to one shot. And off of that, you know, agents suddenly became interested. And I got signed by uh, UTA, which are no longer my agents, but they were wonderful agents. And guys, they were great for me. And I, uh, I don't know, a few months later, maybe 10 months later, uh, David Chase, who is the creator of The Sopranos, read Slip and Fall and really liked it. He invited me to sit down and meet with him. And I talked with him and he said, hey, you know, uh, I don't really have a spot here on my staff. Would you like to write an episode? And this was like at the height of The Sopranos popularity. Wow. It was like season three. It was, it was a phenomenon. It was a show that I'd seen every episode three times. And here I am sitting down in front of my laptop, and the first thing that I'm ever going to have produced is is me writing dialogue for Tony Soprano. It was preposterous. Wow! But it happened. That's, that's a great and, story. And I wrote. This. Yeah, it's it was it's crazy, and and that's how I got into the business. So so um, what I mean, can you can you can you tell us a specific episode that you wrote or a specific scene that that Sopranos sure. fans would know? Oh, yeah. As all Sopranos fans know, this one scene that was in that uh, episode, it was the end of the episode. Uh, Tony sometimes had interactions with a character uh, called Assemblyman Zellman. He was a you know, crooked assemblyman in New Jersey. Uh, shockingly crooked in yeah, New Jersey yeah. politician. Imagine <laughs> that. And uh, the, guy, the guy who played him uh, also played Boone in Animal House. Um, and uh, he had asked Tony, hey, since you're not you know, getting it on with that Russian girlfriend of yours anymore. Do you mind if I take a stab at it, so to speak? And Tony Soprano said, yeah, sure. Uh, I think the line I wrote was, uh, I'd, be, I'd be happy to get her off my payroll. Well, at the end of the episode, Tony has a change of heart, shows up at uh, her house, 
and there's uh, Assemblyman Zellman in bed, and Tony takes off his belt and just starts whipping the hell out of the guy. <laughs> and that's how the episode ends. He whips the hell out of the guy and then turns around and walks out. And it's it's great. I, I, the scene was actually written for the for Zellman to be naked, and I thought it would make him much more vulnerable. Um, you know, curled up in the fetal position, literally like a newborn child, while he's trying to protect himself and, and getting whipped. Um, and also, I just think it's more logical. You know, if you just slept with a beautiful Russian woman, odds are you're probably naked. But he, the actor, wanted to keep his boxer shorts on, which is, you know, I wasn't involved in the production of the episode, and I don't think it hurt the episode. At right. All. But um, yeah, that was the that was the, the the scene that people remember from that episode. Great. Well, you're you're as you mentioned your your first novel, Slip and Fall. You had originally written it as as that screenplay that you wrote in a week. What what was the transition? When did you decide to write that as a novel? It was in between seasons one and two of, of The Guardian, which was the first full time writing job that I had. It was on CBS about ten years ago, and it starred uh, the great Dabney Coleman. Um, and Simon Baker, who's now on, on The Mentalist, uh, the star of The Mentalist. And um, in between, it wasn't seasons one and two, excuse me, seasons two and three. I only worked on seasons two and three of that show. And uh, in between seasons, I had, I had spoken with my agents and asked them, you know, it's been a few years or, you know, about a year and a half since Slip and, Slip and Fall, the screenplay won that film festival. You know, when people read it, it's getting me job after job, but why isn't it? a film. Why can't we sell this as a film? Everyone loves the script. And the answer I got was it's a small story. Hollywood now, and they, then and still now, as you know, they want aliens and explosions and zombies and werewolves and vampires and all the garbage that we're all now officially sick of. Um, but that's what they're looking for. And they're looking for prequels and sequels and comic book adaptations and taking 1970s shows and turning them into films. No one wants an original drama, crime story anymore. They hardly ever get made a good adult drama. And I said, well, you know, I just saw this movie, The 25th Hours, you know, starring Ed Norton. It was a film directed by Spike right. Lee. I go, I just saw that film. And that was a tiny film. That was a story. That, like, that movie couldn't have been smaller. It was basically following one guy around for one day. Mm-hmm. How's that, how'd that get made? And they said, well, it, it had source material. It was based on a book. And that makes studios a little bit more comfortable because they feel, well, there might be a built-in fan base since there's a book, so it's not as big of a risk. And I went, okay, and I left. And two months later, I walked back into their office and dropped the manuscript on their desk and said, here's the source material, sell the book, and then we're going to sell the movie. <laughs> so I, I wrote the book just so I could sell the movie. The strange thing that happened, though, is while I was writing the book, the story became so much better. I found that I wasn't confined by 115 pages, which is the screen, average screenplay length. In fact, now they, they really don't want them going over 110. Um, I wasn't confined by production issues. I didn't have to worry about, oh, did, you know, do I have a strong enough female character to attract a female lead? Now, by the way, I, I feel that Slip and Fall has an amazing female character named Jean that's based on my life. But... Uh, Anyway, I was free to get into the backstories of the character. I was just, I was unfettered. And it was the most, writing a novel was the most rewarding writing experience I've ever had. And I published the book. The book came out. It became a, a bestseller. Um, 
sold like crazy. I think a lot of that, if I'm going to be honest, I like to think a lot of it is people love the book and they recommended it to tons of people. And I know that happened because you get the emails and you hear from people and fans reach out. I know that happened. But also I was writing for a show called Prison Break at the time, which was a huge hit. And Prison Break fans came out and supported the book. And I had written for Law & Order and Law & Order fans came out because they love crime fiction. So they came out and bought the book. So my, my, my TV profile or my TV fans helped me, and I'm not going to say it didn't, but the book did really well. And then, all of a sudden, we started getting phone calls for the film rights. <laughs> and then something bizarre happened. I looked at my agents and I said, I don't want to sell it as a movie. <laughs> and that was the whole reason I wrote the book. But I said, I don't want to sell it as a movie, because at that point in my career, by the time the book came out, as you know, you know, you write the book, and it's a year until the book comes out. At that point, I'd had a couple of movies come out. And the, screen, and the screenplays I wrote were just butchered. The studio rewrites them, the director tweaks it, the actors make it. Writers have no control over their work in film. In TV, you're in, writers are in control of everything. Right. You know, when I, when I was doing Breakout Kings, you know, I co-created that show, and, and they, weren't, they weren't changing wardrobe on the character unless they were clearing it with me and the other writers. In film, they do whatever they want with your work. And it scared me. And so I basically said, this story now means too much to me. I really fell in love with it even more as a book. I'm not selling the film rights unless I'm directing the film. And just now I'm, I'm getting, I'm dipping my toe into the directing pool a little bit, just barely, barely even the tip of the toe. But hopefully soon that'll be something that I can finally direct. That's great. That's great. Well, what's the writing process like for you? Do you outline extensively or do you write more organically to see what happens? Um, it's funny, when I wrote Slip and Fall, and I think it was because I was coming from a place of complete fear and anxiety that I was going to have to spend the rest of my life being a lawyer, I sat down and just started writing scenes. And I just wrote it from beginning to end in nine days. I had no outline, I had nothing. What I had in my head was the idea for the story, which had been bouncing around in my head for months. Um, you sit in enough New York traffic. Uh, I believe the traffic is great for writing because all you do is think of stories. You got nothing else to do. Um, I, I stuck. I, I was stuck in enough traffic that I thought about the story for months. Um, when you read the screenplay, if I'm going to be honest, yeah, I won a film festival, but it reads like a first-time writer's screenplay. I read it now and I just I cringe. Um, I haven't read it in years, but it's just it's it's awful. Um, it must be good enough to get me work because it's gotten me work, but it, it reads amateurish to me and, and some of my worst work. Um, but if, as I've gone forward, I've realized you got to outline, you got to know where you're going. In television, and television so collaborative, um, on almost every show I've been on, you, know, you have a writer's room. When I'm running a show, there's a writer's room. Um, the show that I'm working on now, Vegas, which is, stars uh, Dennis Quaid and Michael Chiklis, it's going to be on CBS this fall. Um, that show it has a great writer's room. And you sit there collaboratively together as a team, and it's wonderful because you're in a room with a bunch of really good writers and really creative people and funny people and smart people. And I'm usually the dumbest person in the writer's room. I mean, these people are just so bright. And you sit there and you break the story down beat by beat by beat. Teaser, first act, second act, third act, fourth act, fifth act, if it's a show with five acts. Uh, some are only four and you go beat by beat, and you use color-coded markers for different storylines, and you move stuff around, and you will have the whole thing done, then you'll erase the whole whiteboard because you realize it stinks, and you'll start all over. And it's just this frustrating, wonderful process. 
and then you take that outline. Uh, in television, if I have a good outline, I'll have the script done in 48 hours. It, the writing is the easy part. The writing is the treat that you give yourself for killing yourself for a couple of weeks breaking a good story. Um, in books, it's a little different. Um, I just kind of sit down and plot out the, who the characters are. I'll spend weeks just thinking about the characters and their backgrounds and just writing it all down. Sometimes I use maybe 20% of their backstory in the book, but I need to know their backstory because that will, you know, inform how they talk, the decisions they make, what they're wearing. I just need to know this stuff. Um, then I'll jot down moments that I think will be cool. Uh, and then I'll fill in little moments in between those moments and then little moments in between those moments. And then I'll start putting down stuff that logically has to happen. Well, we're going to get the money at this point, the money that they stole. At some point, they're going to need to set up, you know, the offshore accounts. So you have to have that moment. And then next thing you know, you have about 20 or 30 little bullet points with, with a couple of sentences written after them. And then I'm ready to sit down and write. And I'll realize as I'm writing, there are other moments I've failed to put in there. And I'll fill that. Right. But it's a lot less detailed than television. And feature films is a whole other process where I write every scene down on a note card. And I'll have a hundred note cards taped to my office wall. And then as I, you know, start writing the film, I take a highlighter and put an X over that card. And it's the most satisfying feeling in the world. I mean, it's, it, it shows what, what, what psychotics writers are. <laughs> but I just get, I get a high putting an X through those cards because I'm like, okay, I'm one scene closer to being finished. And so that's kind of my pride. The only thing I do with features is I write the first scene and then I write the last scene. And that way I know where my character's starting in his mind, in his place in life, financially, emotionally, whatever you need to know. And then I know where that character's ending at the end of the story. And so then in between, I know what I have to do to get them through that emotional arc. Um, and that, that's basically my process for those three things. Gotcha. Um, uh, and then I write comic books sometimes, but you don't want to hear about that. <laughs> we can talk about that later. So, so I, I, um, yeah. I, I was curious. I mean, um, as you mentioned earlier, you live in L.A. now, but, but w without a doubt, 15 Digits is a quintessential New York novel. It, it really captures the city and, and the people who live in the city. Do you do you? I'm just curious, as, as a former New Yorker, do you do you find yourself sometimes reading the Daily News and New York Post online to just kind of stay in touch with what people are talking about and writing about in the city? Yeah, I mean, I read the New York Post every day. It's the best sports section in the world. <laughs> I just love it. Um, uh, it's it's, it's I, I mean, I'm addicted to it. Uh, I, I yeah, I read about New York all the time, and I go back home not nearly as much as I want to, but when I do, I go for, you know, very often weeks and weeks and weeks. And, uh, I, you know, look, if you're, if you're raised in New York and, and, and you, you live it, and it's not going to leave yeah, you. Yeah. You know, I could go live in Anchorage for 20 <laughs> years, you know, and I'm still a New, you know, I'm still a New Yorker. I could be in Juneau and I'm not going to lose this accent. Sure, sure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is what it is. So, so um, you said, you, but, uh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm I, I was just going to say, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier you're working on a new show um, that's going to be uh, premiering on CBS Vegas. Do you want to talk about that at all? Uh, you know, how that how that got started, how that project? Yeah, well, I'm not really the person to talk about it because I didn't create the okay, show. The that's show fine. was created by two really... But, but I'll tell you one thing, because it deals with writing. It was created by two really great writers, Greg Walker 
and 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 Nick Pileggi, and then, you know, you know Nick Pileggi, you wrote, you know, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. wise guy, and, 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 he, and he wrote he wrote the movies, uh, you know, Goodfellas and, and Casino. And the, the man is almost eighty years old. He's I think seventy eight, seventy nine years old. And he is as sharp and smart as I ever hoped to be. And that was one of the big selling points for me for doing the show is I'm going to get to work with a legend, um, and I'm going to get to learn from sure. him. So yeah, it should be a fun experience. That's, that's great. Well, what what tips, given your success thus far, what tips or advice would you offer for aspiring writers, people who either want to write novels or screenplays? Um, I, it's, I got you know, I, I'll give you my my my, my meaningless advice, uh, but it's going to sound um, you know, it's going to sound. I'm not trying to be a wise guy. You just write every you how many people you know are so good at about writing about character development they'll talk about all the ideas they have and I'll see them a year later and say you know hey how did it come out or how's your screenplay let me read it I'd love to read it and they're like ah, I still I haven't finished it or some some even worse I haven't gotten to it I write every day I write so much that I have a herniated disc in my neck now, and I have to get epidurals every couple of months because I've been hunched over a laptop for 11 years. I mean, I've, just, I've physically destroyed my body writing, which I didn't think was possible. My dad worked construction his entire life. He doesn't have a single herniated disc. But me and my Mac have given me myself a herniated disc in the base of my neck. I write every day. I write on Saturdays and Sundays. I get up early and write for a couple of hours and then go home. I, I rent an office near my house. And then go home so I can have breakfast with my kids and spend a day with my family. But I write every day. I mean, it's 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 awful. It's a sickness. But I have to do it because in my business, the guy who parks your car when you go to dinner, because in L.A. it's all valet right. parking, which annoys the, the hell out of me. Um, but the guy who parks your car and the guy who gives you your coffee, they, they all want my job. Everyone in L.A. is an aspiring writer or an actor. And all the writers want my job. And, I, you know, I'm not so conceited to think I'm the best writer in the world. I know I'm not. But I might, I might stay in the, in the writer's chair and might not lose my job if I'm the hardest working writer in the world. So I write every single day. And the other advice I can give is don't fall in love with, with what you write, especially if you want to be in TV and film, because you're going to have people who aren't writers, executives, 99.9% of them have never written a thing in their life, but they're somehow have the audacity to tell you what your screenplay should be. And you have to figure out how to manage that without destroying your script. And sometimes, by the way, you can't. Sometimes you just go, oh, this is what's happening, and, and I don't have the power in this situation, especially early in my career. And you start making changes to your screenplay, and you just watch it getting worse and worse and worse. And it's disheartening. Um, but you, you, you better not fall in love with what you write you should put it down after you after you've written it and go back to it three weeks later and read it and reread it and be really critical because when you hand your stuff in for the first time people are going to read the first 10 20 pages most at most I, i'd say no more than 10 especially in a screenplay or a television show and if they don't like it if you haven't captured them with smart sharp dialogue with a, with a cool premise with stuff that jumps off the page they're going to put it down um, it's just, I, I do that. I, I have to hire writers when I'm running a show. And even when I'm not running a show, but if I'm, um, if I'm a co-executive producer on a show, I get screenplays sent to me by agents all the time. Please read this guy. And, you know, 
10 pages in, I'll know if the person is a good writer or not, or if they're just playing it safe. They might be a good writer, but they're playing it safe. You want people to grab you with their words. So, you know, that's my advice for what it's worth. I, I you know, I don't know if it's worth anything, but that, that's really my best advice. That's, that's good advice, I think. So tell us a little bit um, about the comic book. Oh, the comic book was something I wrote for a, a subsidiary of DC Comics called Wildstorm. And it's, it's a horror story set in Iraq. And it's really cool. Um, it's set in the Iraq war. The problem is, is Wildstorm went out of business. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I can find another publisher if I'd like, and then they'd have to reimburse Wildstorm for the money they paid me, or DC, which was the parent company of Wildstorm. I don't think this thing's ever going to see the light of day, and it's a darn shame. It's a super cool well, well um, I'm just... That's the other thing that happened. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just curious, do you do you get a chance at all to read much? And are there any books that you've read in like the past year or so that, that really grabbed you that you would that you'd like to mention? Well, the best book I've read in the past year is 15 Digits by Nick Santora. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got to sell books, I know, man. I know, um, no, uh, no, in all, in all, in all seriousness, um, yeah, I, I get to... I get to read a, a lot. I have to read a lot. And sadly, it's, it's, it's not always for pleasure. It's not always, hey, this book just captured me. There was something about this thing when I passed it in the bookstore that was calling out to me. That happens sometimes, but rarely. Um, most of the reading I do is, is either research for what I'm working on, and I, and I read a lot of books for that, or it's reading books that have been sent to me by an agent, a manager, a producer, what have you, who are asking me, hey, do you think you can turn this into a TV series or a film? And that happens a lot. Gotcha. Uh, so it's not, it's pleasurable because I'm reading very often interesting things, uh, but it's not just for pleasure. But I've read a ton of books about Las Vegas over the past couple of months because of the new, the new show I'm on. Um, I read a ton of books about bank robbers for a pilot I wrote about a family of bank robbers. Um, a little under a year ago, about 10 months ago. And um, I, I, I have been reading for, for fun uh, a, a couple of, two books, uh, and they could be more different. One is the biography of the great author John Fonte, who's a great Italian-American writer who's had a resurgence recently, and I'm so thrilled over that because his book, Full of Life, is one of, it's one of my favorite books of all time. And then the other book I've been reading is, uh, and I just finished it, and it's hysterically funny and irreverent. And I know this is going to sound crazy, but I think it's the, the great American success story is not Taco Bell material by comedian Adam Carolla. There's <laughs> <laughs> a big difference, John Fonte and Adam Carolla. But Adam Carolla is a guy who, like me, did not grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth and worked for everything he had, and now he's a multi-millionaire uh, guy who has his own empire. Yeah, he, he's great. You know, he I've, listened to, I've listened to his podcast. He, he's amazing. I mean, talk about someone who's... He's, who's, he's one of the... Sh sharp. Yeah, yeah. I mean, talk about someone yeah, who's sharp, fearless. Right? I mean, he'll I mean, just he'll put stuff out there that you're, like, listening to it, and you're cringing and then laughing at the same time hysterically. Yeah. He's, he's, he's so sharp. He's... I such a, a mastery of the dictionary. You know, this is a guy who's a self-admitted, uh, you know, semi-illiterate. And I think saying that, I think he's brilliant. Um, but he has mastery over language like very few people I've met have. 
Um, but he, you know, he is the number one podcast in the world. Yep. He travels the country every week and does stand up and makes a fortune. He he does television shows. I, I I admire anyone who pulls himself up by their bootstraps. And that's another book that I've read that I just think is absolutely fantastic. So those are the two things that are on my nightstand, so to speak. Okay, great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Nick Santora, author of the new crime novel, 15 Digits. It's available in bookstores now or as an ebook. Nick, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, are you kidding me? Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, sure. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.